Would you stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word this morning? Our scripture passage this morning comes from Philippians 2, where we read these words. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And together we say this last line, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're going to talk about three things, Lewis and Clark, the first mountain, and the second mountain. So that's our map. Let's talk about Lewis and Clark first. Uh, for over 300 years, explorers from four different nations had been looking for a water route that would connect the Pacific Ocean to the Mississippi River. You might remember this. Everything that everyone uh, thought, they just knew. They just knew that it was out there somewhere. And it was broadly believed by European Americans at that time. There was like this persistent assumption about the way the world was, about kind of the map of the world. And the assumption inspired Lewis and Clark to journey through a strange land. And so for many months, they're traveling through cold, dark nights, winters. They're traveling, um, you know, encountering grizzly bears. And they survived a, a month-long portage around a waterfall. After about 15 months of seemingly endless travel, Meriwether Lewis dipped his hand into some icy cold water in a stream, and he took a long drink because he had endured and had found this little spring that he believed would flow all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. So he took that long drink of water thinking, the most challenging part of this journey is now behind us. But he could not have been more wrong. Lewis believed he had, you know, basically found this source of water and that they would walk up this hill and that it would be all downhill from there, that there would be a gentle slope that would take them, you know, maybe a half a day to cross and they'd carry their canoes a little further. And then after all of these many months, they believed they were uh, going to crest the hill and coast, coast to the finish line. They, of course, could not have been more disappointed. What they actually discovered was not like a stream leading down to the ocean, but the Rocky Mountains. 
for as you know miles and miles and miles as far as they could see peak after peak stretching across the land were the rocky mountains there was no northwest passage there was no canoeable river there was no water route like the driving assumption of the brightest, most intel like the uh, most entrepreneurial minds, creative leaders regarding the new world was absolutely mistaken. The entire mental model in regards to the continent was wrong. Like everyone believed that the geography of the West was going to be the same or at least similar to the geography of the East. And so when Native Americans told Lewis and Clark, like, there will be some mountains ahead you need to cross, in their minds, the only mountains they could conceive were like the tree-lined rolling hills of the Appalachian Mountains. When they saw the Rocky Mountains, they could not even wrap their minds around what was before them. They could hardly take it in. One explorer was quoted as saying, looking at the Rocky Mountains, that it was the most terrible mountains I ever beheld. At that moment, everything Meriwether Lewis assumed about his journey changed. I mean, he was planning to explore the world by boat. He was a river rafter in his canoe. And now he needed to, be, to learn to be a mountaineer. They had planned on rowing. Now they would be climbing. They had thought the hardest part is behind us. But it was very much in front of them. And there were no um, exact experts, no maps, no best practices that they had already that they could rely on. In a sense, you could say they had come to their second mountain. Let's first talk about the first mountain. On the first mountain in life, there are experts. There are maps. There is documented territory, clear expectations. On the second mountain in life, you leave the map. You're in uncharted territory. It is different than you expected. Sometimes you come to the second mountain by age. <laughs> Sometimes you come to it by crisis. Sometimes you come to it through relationship. But here is what Meriwether Lewis had to embrace at that moment in time facing those, mountain, those uh, Rocky Mountains. The future is going to be nothing like the past. And the best thing to do is to stay calm, stay connected, and stay the course. The first mountain for Lewis and Clark was well known. The second mountain was known only by the Native Americans who had traveled it before. And in life, the first mountain is often about conforming to this world. And then the second mountain in life is often uh, more of a transformation. 
in Romans, there's this wonderful passage in Romans 12 that just says, do not be conformed to this world. It's often what the first mountain is about. But be transformed, which is often what the second mountain in life calls upon in each of us. On the first mountain, we often follow a script, a script that has been given to us, you know, by our families, by our society, sometimes by our religious communities. We're following that script. We're fulfilling those wishes, hopes, and dreams and expectations. Just like there were some broadly believed assumptions about the way that the world worked in the time of Lewis and Clark, there are some broadly believed assumptions about the way that the world works today. Now, just because something is broadly believed does not necessarily mean that it's true. Thomas Merton has this wonderful image where he just says, you know, you can spend your whole entire life climbing a ladder and get to the end of your life and realize that that ladder was actually leaning up against the wrong building. Just because something is broadly assumed does not actually mean that it is true. The first mountain in life, it is a necessary part of life, but we are not meant to remain there forever. The first mountain, in a sense, is about building up your ego, pleasing others, listening to the voice of experts, but the second mountain in life is not about being conformed to this world. It's about being transformed. The first mountain is mostly about you. It's more independent, self-focused. The second mountain becomes more about others, about building a life of interconnectedness and interdependence, about serving others, about spreading love. Now, our culture, our world, our society prizes the first mountain values. The first mountain is described perfectly by Charles Taylor, who says this, in the 20th century, there arises in Western societies a generalized culture of authenticity or expressive individualism in which people are encouraged to find their own way, discover their own fulfillment, do their own thing. Now this like hyper-individualized age that we live in, it's what Kierkegaard called the aesthetic life. So the person leading the aesthetic life is basically leading a life, um, kind of looking at my life like it's a piece of art. A, you know, judging my own life based on aesthetic values aesthetic criteria. So I'm saying about my life, like, is my life interesting or is it dull? Is my life pretty or ugly? Is my life pleasurable or painful? And life in this mode becomes like this endless spiral of more experiences, more beauty, more excitement. And each individual day, super fun, but it doesn't add up to much. So at the end, people will often be like, I've been climbing, 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 and like, was my ladder leaning against the wrong build? Is, is this it? This is the age we live in. Now, in a world, this is 
ties in with our scripture passage because in a world that values this like hyper individualism, you can actually be thought of as a very, very good person while only ever thinking about yourself. Ironic, isn't it? So you could say like this, there are kind of four steps to building a meaningful life on the first mountain, like defined by our culture, by our world. First of all, if you want to build a meaningful life on the first mountain, you need to feel indignant all the time. Because if you want to basically show everybody how good you are, how awake you are, how woke you are, you're going to be indignant all the time about something. And that is like a key mark to showing that you're building a good life on the first mountain. Because if you are indignant, you're like aware. You're tuned in. Here's the thing about it. You don't actually have to do anything. You don't have to actually do anything for anyone so long as you're indignant so long as you're awake and awoke. See, in the old days, it was like goodness was bound up in serving one another, like actually showing up for one another, showing up for my neighbors, actually loving and serving others. But now, you could be a really good person and be completely self-absorbed so long as you're displaying your anger about the bad things other people are doing. If you can be like indignant quicker than other people, extra brownie points for you. Okay, second thing, like step to building a meaningful life on the first mountain. First, you want to be indignant all the time. Second thing is like you want to make yourself heard. This is super important, right? Like if you want to have a meaningful life, you got to be heard. You got to stick your lawn sign out, which depending on where you live probably looks like the lawn signs of all your neighbors. You got to wear the t-shirt, which probably looks like the same t-shirt that all your friends are wearing, but you're making yourself heard. You are saying like, I am not going to let anybody else silence me. This is what I stand for. You've got to make yourself heard. Again, not exactly about doing anything for anyone, but I got to make myself heard. Third thing is I got to tell my story. And you got to tell your story, the more vulnerable, the better. Because like the way that you got to those feelings, you got to let everybody know that was not easy to get to those feelings that you got, right? So you got to tell your story. And the thing about telling your story is that sometimes it's super inconvenient because you start telling your story and like um, other people are so selfish, they interrupt you to tell about their story. And so then this becomes like interpersonal relationships on the first mountain of life. You got to tell your story. On the first mountain, sometimes like, the bravest thing you can do is talk about yourself a lot <laughs> and keep interrupting to talk about yourself more. Welcome to a life of meaning on the first mountain. Okay, the fourth thing is you got to condemn bad people. Like when someone says something bad or does something bad, you got to get out your phone, like immediately. The faster, the better. And you got to like push the buttons on your phone that show that you are not okay with the bad things the bad people said right? And this creates like a life of meaning. And people say like, okay, this is a good person because they're indignant and being heard and telling their story and condemning bad people. Now, here's the thing. This is not all bad. 
right? There's a place for these things. It's just that we're not, we're not designed to live there exclusively and only all the time. Like, there's so much more. Of course, developing your ego and differentiating yourself in the world and understanding your design and understand, those things are important part of the first half of life. The problem is we're not meant to live there only and to remain there. You could say, like, it's fine for, like, a 13-year-old to dress the part, but if you're still 45 dressing like you're 13, you sort of go, like, maturity is sort of, you know, it beckons, it invites you to let go of one season and to embrace the new one. So just like Lewis and Clark left the map and entered uncharted territory, the second mountain will take you off the map. into unknown land, into uncharted territory. And in our world today, there just are not many guides for ever leaving the first mountain. Some people never do. There are many people who will spend their whole lives on the egocentric, self-focused mountain of the first mountain. And we desperately need more individuals who will leave this self-conscious, you know, self-obsessed to a sort of self-forgetfulness and other-oriented way of life. We desperately need more people who will leave that hyper-individualized way of living for a deep life, an interrelated life, an interconnected and interdependent life of service and love. So let's talk about the second mountain. I do not have four steps for a meaningful life on the second mountain. Don't you kind of wish there were four? <laughs> we have God's spirit as our guide. We have our sacred scriptures to illuminate the path before us. Our passage for today gives us some clues when Paul says, do not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interest of others. When the apostle Paul wrote those words, he's writing to a church in Philippi and he is inviting them to an alternative way of life. Like he's calling all followers of Christ throughout time to a different kind of life. See, in many ancient cities, like Philippi, people like competed over their reputations. They would compete for honor to be seen as good. And that's why Paul has to explicitly remind them and instruct them to care about others, not just themselves. And of course, we live in a very different time, but the message just, I love how scripture just sometimes, right? It shoots like an arrow through history. It applied then and it applies now. It applied then in a certain context and it applies now in our context. Like every single minute in our context, every single minute, 317,000 
status updates are made to Facebook. 147,000 photos are uploaded. 54,000 links are shared. That's just one social media platform. And every single time, someone is attempting to be heard, right? Seeking our attention in a world with just limited attention. And it, very often, everyone is talking about themselves, right? What they think, what they're doing, what is going on in, in their life. I had a professor in seminary and who said there's kind of two types of people in life. There are the here I am people, and then there are the there you are people. And a here I am person will walk into a room, dinner party, meeting, family, and they'll, through their body language and their speech and their actions, they'll say, here I am. And like everything kind of becomes about them. Here I am. But a there you are person walks into that same room, dinner party, meeting, family, and they're like, there you are. There you are. And their, their actions, their body language, the questions, the curiosities, it's like there's an other orientation. They're curious about others. They want to know about others. So while they might share about their life too, it's not all about them. It's not here I am. It's there you are. Like I, I see you. And I care to see you. And I care about you. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but, do you see that little word, but, in humility count others more significant. It's just, it's interesting. It's almost like a mutually exclusive sort of alternative word, that little word but, like either we humble ourselves and see others are worthy of being served or we're sort of left in our conceit and selfishness. It's interesting how he sets it up like that. It's almost like he's saying, you know, there's not exactly a middle road to like make your life all about yourself and it'll sort of bless people subsequently. We also, you know, we don't serve others just to make ourselves feel good. We give ourselves away because God gave himself away. It is to follow God in the way of Jesus, to live a cruciform life, to be taken and blessed and broken and given for the sake of the world. Jesus gave himself away. In this book called Practical Wisdom, the authors tell this little story about a hospital janitor named Luke. And in the hospital where Luke, the janitor, was working, there was a young man who had gotten into a fight, and he was now in a coma. He was not coming out anytime soon. And the young man's father was sitting by his side for six months while he was in this coma. And one day, Luke, the janitor, went in and cleaned the young man's room. But the dad wasn't there at that moment. He was out getting a smoke. And so he cleans the room, and he leaves. And later in the day, Luke, the janitor, encounters the father. And the father snaps at him. says, why didn't you clean my son's room? Now, a first mountain person, quite naturally, would say, like, they would see their job as cleaning rooms. And so they would say, like, snap back. I did clean. I did clean the room. 
you were out getting a smoke when I cleaned it. But a second mountain person who has sort of developed the practices of seeing the needs of others ahead of their own doesn't see their job as cleaning the room. They actually see their job as serving the patients and the families who are in crisis. And so in that moment, what does Luke do? He cleans the room again. And when he was interviewed about it later, he said these words, I cleaned it so that he could see me cleaning it. I can understand how he can be. It was like six months that his son had been there. He'd been a little frustrated, and I cleaned it again. But I wasn't angry with him. I guess I could understand. Sounds like the golden rule. Sounds like the second mountain. Sounds like our scripture passage. It sounds like look not only to your own interests, but to the interest of others. So like Meriwether Lewis, may you have the courage to adventure into the unknown. May you face the future that looks nothing like the past, knowing that you hold the hand of the one whose love for you knows no limits. May you do nothing out of selfish ambition, but may you follow Jesus in humility. May you foster a life rich in kindness and connections on that second mountain. Let's pray together as we close. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.